couple of housekeeping things before I begin today's message. First of all, I'm honored and pleased to have been invited to continue filling this pulpit through the month of April. And so, uh, well, thank you. That was nice. And with that in mind, right now I'm planning to spend the five Sundays of the month of March uh, with a series of messages I call This I Believe. And uh, we'll go over basic Baptist beliefs about the Bible, the Trinity, uh, why Jesus came, the church, and the Christian code of conduct. We're putting together some special note-taking sheets that you can do, and it'll be something you'll want to be here and invite your friends so that you'll have a better grasp of what our basic beliefs are and why we believe and do uh, what we do uh, within our denomination. I hope you'll plan to be here and invite others for that. Also, I have only one sermon that is on hell But hell is too important to ignore. But I have one sermon on that, and we're going to preach that sermon next week. I call that anticipating hell. And so uh, you're going to catch it next week. (laughs) It's an important message, and so I hope that you'll plan to be here for, for that message. But today we deal with signs of the Spirit in the church, signs of the Spirit in the church. In our text, if you want to turn in your Bible, uh, although we will also be projecting it, is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, signs of the Spirit in the church. A quick word of welcome to those who are joining us via the internet. We thank you for worshiping with us today at Hoffmantown Church. Back in the 80s, I was on the staff of a church in, uh, in Odessa, Texas. I was also doing Marine Corps reserve duty, and the Marine Corps sent me to Norfolk, Virginia for a two-week uh, school. And uh, so while I was there, I was, uh, oh, I got into that second week. At about Wednesday night of the second week, I decided I needed some Christian fellowship. And so I looked up in the yellow pages, which we did in those days, uh, and, and found a large Baptist church in Norfolk, Virginia. And so I gave them a call, and I said, do you all have a fellowship supper on Wednesday nights? And the lady said, yes, we do. And I said, what time does it start? I would like to come to it. And she said, well, you'd be welcome. And so I went to that church that night as I pulled into the driveway or the the parking lot of the big Baptist church in Norfolk, Virginia that night. A family pulled in right next to me in their station wagon and the family got out of the station wagon at the same time I got out of my car and they uh I saw the the man there and we looked at each other and I nodded and smiled and he quickly looked away and uh got his family ready, and we, I followed him into the church, 
and he got in line to get food, and I got in line right behind him, and he looked at me again, and I smiled and nodded, and he quickly looked away. And people got in line behind me, and I turned around and looked and smiled and nodded, and they quickly looked away. What in the world was wrong with me? I didn't know. We went through the line to get food. Nobody spoke to me. One young lady that was serving food said, Hi, I got that one. We went into the room where we were to eat. I sat down at a table by myself. Nobody sat at the table with me. Finally, one other fellow who was visiting sat at the table with me, and we talked a little bit. When we got through eating, I went upstairs into the auditorium for the prayer time and the Bible study time, and nobody sat on the pew with me. I was by myself. And when the whole service was over, I left, and I smiled and nodded at others, and they quickly looked away. Nobody from the church, except that one young lady that said hi, who was serving food, spoke to me at that great big Baptist church in Norfolk, Virginia, on that Wednesday night. Fast forward two nights later. We got through with the, with the two-week training thing that we were doing about noon on Friday. And I was going to drive home. I had driven to Norfolk from Odessa, Texas. So I was going to drive home, get as far as I could go on that Friday night. And so I was going to take I-95 down to Atlanta. And somebody had told me that the uh, beltway or that the, that the loop around Atlanta was torn up pretty badly. And so I was just hoping for the best as I got down there. And uh, uh, by the way, do you all remember CB radios? <laughs> I had a CB radio in my car so that I could tell if I was going to be allowed to drive too fast or not. And, oh, confession is good for the soul, isn't it? And so uh, as I was driving toward Atlanta, uh, I was concerned about whether, when I should get off the freeway and try to take surface roads to get around all the horrible construction that was going on. And I heard three truckers. One of them's name was Wooden Axle. Another one's name was Peacemaker. And I don't remember what the third one's name was. But they were all talking back and forth with each other. And they were on their way to Birmingham, Alabama. And so I knew they were going the direction I was going. They were going to hit I-10 and, and go uh, west. And so I was listening to them, and eventually I said, uh, I broke into them, and I said, uh, uh, Wooden Axel, this is whatever my name was, and that's none of y'all's business. <laughs> and I said, Wooden Axel, this is me. And I said, uh, Do y'all, can y'all tell me how to get through Atlanta with all the construction that I understand is going on down there? And he said, Why, we sure can. We'd be glad to help you out. And he said, uh, uh, who are you? What do you look like? And I said, well, I'm driving a yellow Mercury. And, uh, and then uh, Peacemaker said, I think I see you. Are you, you know, da-da-da-da. And we, we worked it out, and they figured out which one I was, and I figured out who they were. And so we created a convoy. <laughs> there was an 18-wheeler, an 18-wheeler, Joe Long, and an 18-wheeler. 
And we drove down I-95. We, I followed them, went right among them, all the way around to I-10. And we went to Birmingham. And we had the greatest conversation, had the most fun. These guys obviously did not go to their local Baptist church. <laughs> or at least they didn't talk like it. But, but, but we had the greatest time with each other. And I identified myself as, as on the ministerial staff. And, and they treated me kindly. And, and uh, I told them, listen. And when we got to Birmingham and they got off, I said, uh, you guys, y'all get involved in your local church now. Know that Jesus loves you and I love you and I'll be praying for you and all that stuff. And, and uh, they said, okay, preacher, you take care of yourself now. Now, my question to you is, which group of people would you rather hang out with? That bunch of Baptists or that bunch of truckers? What's wrong with this picture? Is that how Christ intends his church to behave? How does a church become the kind of church God intends that people will want to be a part of. Let's look at the scripture to find out. Acts 2, 42 to 47. <clears throat> the church has just been created by a powerful act of the Holy Spirit. The uh, Holy Spirit demonstrated himself and then Peter preached a fabulous sermon a Holy Spirit-inspired message, and thousands of people got saved. And so now we reach this point where the Holy Spirit is a part of the local church, and we're going to see what the fellowship, how the fellowship of the local congregation is demonstrated, uh, de demonstrates the power of the Holy Spirit. So, reading uh, from... Uh, Acts 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Father, I pray you'll help us to glean from this, this passage of Scripture how we can understand what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us and in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. The early church was literally filled with the Holy Spirit. If this church, Hoffmantown Church, will be an effective church for the cause of Christ, it will be one that is like our example from Acts, filled with the Holy Spirit. How can we know whether this is a spirit-filled church? How can we know that? What are the characteristics we should look for? Well, in our text, I see at least five characteristics, five things that we see here 
that we can uh, look at them and you be the judge of how well this church measures up. Hopefully, you're in great shape. Or does some spiritual work need to take place? And you decide for yourself where you are as a member or as an attendee of, of this church. The first one I see is the members practiced a Christ-like lifestyle. It said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles taught two primary things. The, the apostles taught, first of all, the gospel, that you needed to get saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. That was the primary message that they were teaching. These people that were in the church had experienced that. They were getting saved. They were saved. And so they had experienced the gospel. The second thing the apostles taught was how to live in Christ, a spirit-led, Christ-like lifestyle, a Christ-like lifestyle, living in Christ, always puts Christ first ahead of everything else. The apostle Paul wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He wrote that in Galatians 2.20. It's not me that lives, it's Christ who lives in me. That's the spirit controlled life. Christ who lives in me. The apostles teaching Christians that that's what we're to be about if we're going to be spirit-filled. And the apostles taught that a Christ-like lifestyle recognizes the worth of everybody. That everybody is worth everything. 2 Peter 3.9, Peter wrote this, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That our mission, our purpose, is to reach out and touch everyone with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all made in the image of God, and no one is to be looked down upon or hated. Rather, we are determined to love all people, to love everybody. Now, loving them does not mean we accept ungodly behavior, but it means that we love them in spite of what they do sometimes, no matter who they are or what they have done, no matter what kind of a background, we love them and want to see them saved, Christian. That's, our, that's what we want to do. That's what the apostles were teaching. First of all, the gospel. Second, the Christ-like lifestyle that says we want to see people saved, just like Secretary Hale was talking about a while ago. We want to see them saved no matter what. And then the apostles taught that Christ gives our life new purpose. What our old life was, that's all changed. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. New purpose that we have. 
Part of life's new purpose is recognizing one of Satan's oldest and biggest lies for what it is. Satan says that joy comes from taking care of yourself first. Isn't that right? Satan says, hey, if you're not going to take care of yourself, who is going to? You gotta, you're gonna, the only way you're going to be joyful, the only way you're going to be happy is take care of yourself first. You look out for number one. That's what, that's what Satan would have you believe. Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life, this is Jesus speaking, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, get your perspective right. Put Jesus first. Let him be number one. It's counterintuitive, isn't it, to put somebody else first makes you happy. But that's what it's about. Brings you peace. The greatest commandment, in, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, thou shalt love yourself. Oh, he didn't either. He said, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Then thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live for thee. There's where the fulfillment comes from. There's where the purpose comes from. Living for God and living for others, then that gives us perspective. Now, he said, uh, live for others as you would live for yourself. So, you know, love others like you live, love yourself. So, he's saying it's okay to love yourself, but just do it in the right perspective, in the right order. Take care of it. Many people, including Christians, spend their lives climbing the ladder of success just to find out their ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Spent your life leaning against the wrong wall thinking you were climbing to something that was going to be meaningful. Do members of this church, folks, do y'all practice a Christ-like lifestyle? I hope so. Do you have your priorities in order? Is Christ number one or others number two close by? I was, uh, had gotten back from, from uh, Vietnam and gotten out of the service and went, went back to college in Bertalis. And a Navy recruiter had set up a table in the sub, student union building, and so, since I had just gotten out of the military, well, I kind of felt a, a kinship with this uh, military guy, and so I went over and struck up a conversation with him, and we kind of enjoyed each other for a while, and, and uh, he said, let's go get a cup of coffee there, Corporal, and I said, well, let's do, and so we went over and sat down, and this guy cussed like a, well, like a sailor, <laughs> and just, you know, it just, just every third word out of his mouth was what, I mean, we have sailors in here, and I know y'all are better than that. Uh, and every third word out of his mouth was just blue. I mean, just that's the kind of language the guy used. Well, about three or four weeks later, I was uh, 
leading music in a revival in First Baptist Church in Melrose. And this guy was there, and he was a, a young boy's Sunday school teacher. I thought, oh, no. And when he looked at me, he went, I, oh, no. Somebody with that kind of a mouth teaching young boys? Look at the hypocrisy. Folks, are you playing that kind of a game? If you're a potty mouth, knock it off. If you claim to be a Christian, don't do that kind of stuff. People will see you for what you are. Put Jesus Christ in first place in your life. The members practiced a Christ-like lifestyle. Second, there was the presence of unity. Verses 44 to 46. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. These people were all together. They had a sense of unity. They were together. The people in the church were partners in purpose. They knew that fellowship was more than an occasional potluck. They were together they were unified. They really took care of each other. The story is told of a, of a family of Japanese Americans during World War II out in California. Those of you that know your history from that period of time know that about 100,000 Japanese Americans in what was just a travesty were gathered together and put in internment camps uh, some in places like Idaho and other places, and they had to sell their businesses and walk away from them. Well, one family had a farm in California, and they were uprooted from their farm and put in one of those internment camps, and the government gave that farm to a Chinese family. Well, if you know about the historical problems between, especially during World War II, that were going on between Japanese and Chinese, uh, then you can understand how that could have been a, a flint and, and steel issue there, where it could have just been horrible. But it, as it was, both the Chinese and Japanese families were Christians. And so the Chinese family took over the Japanese family's farm and they immediately got in touch with the Japanese family and started writing them letters and they told them about the farm what they were doing they got letters back from the Japanese family saying have you tried this have you done that and thanking them for the way they were running the farm and so they kept up this friendship throughout the four years of World War II when the war was over the Japanese family came back to their farm and found it in as good a shape as it had been when they left. And the friendship that was formed between the Chinese Americans and the Japanese Americans stayed a friendship for the rest of their lives. Because why? Because they were Christians. And being Christians, Christ brought unity among them through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the church is a local body but the church is also Christians everywhere. And so through the power of the Holy Spirit, unity brought what could have been a very difficult situation to a wonderful experience 
of people being uh, together, unified through that wonderful power. So, the presence of unity. Thirty, uh, third, the people had an attitude of reverence. Reverence to God. Verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe. Now, that doesn't mean awe. Like, oh, I feel so bad. No, it's awe. Oh, God. Awesome. God, you are so wonderful. God, you are so great. A spirit of deep reverence toward God. The Spirit-filled church does not treat the things of God lightly. It does not go against God's will even when it seems like for a good purpose. If God says something, you don't go against it, even if it seems like maybe a good idea. You follow the will and the direction of Almighty God. Second Samuel 6, you may remember that Yuza, or however you pronounce that guy's name, was walking beside the Ark of the Covenant, and it started to slip. And Yuza, everybody had been told, don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. Don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. But it started to slip, and Yuza reached up and touched it, and he died. He thought he was doing something good. I mean, I was just trying to keep it from falling. But he was told, don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. That's not what God wants you to do. He did something God didn't want him to do, even though he thought he was doing a good thing. Don't do stuff that God doesn't want you to do, people. Be in awe before God. Whatever God commands you to do, whatever direction you get from God, do it. Do it God's way. Do we seek God's instruction? Do we listen for His communication? Do we revere it? And follow it above all else. I've referred before to the Experiencing God study that Henry Blackaby did. He talks about four different ways God speaks to us. And I'll remind you of that from time to time because I like it. Four ways God speaks to us. One is in his word. And to me, this is the, this is the number one way. Another way that he speaks to us is in prayer. When we talk to him and we listen to him as God speaks to us. And prayer is so very important. Martin Luther King said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. You got to pray, but you pray and you listen. God, help me to know the next step I need to take. I'm listening. Give me direction. Prayer, godly counsel, the counsel of godly people. And then circumstances of life. God, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do here. If you want me to take that step, open that door. If you open that door, then I'm going to assume you want me to take that step. Sometimes it's that simple. So you put all four of those together. You don't just go by one. You put them all together and say, all right, God, I'm listening for you. And so an attitude of reverence as we listen to the way God communicates to us. And then we move in that direction. And we ask for God to give us wisdom. Oh, God, help me to know. Help me not to make a mistake. 
God, I'm listening. Help me to pay attention to you and to put you first, others second, myself third. And then, fourth, so far we've talked about the members practiced a Christ-like lifestyle. Second, there was a presence of unity. And then there was an attitude of reverence. And now there's the presence of great joy. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. They had a kind of holy joy at church and around other people. These early Christians were happy in the Lord and others liked them for it. As opposed to that bunch of yahoos at that great old big church in Norfolk. They, they weren't much fun to be around. But these people in the church that was filled with the Holy Spirit, they were just fun to be around. They liked each other and other people liked them. They were just good people that God loved. And they loved God and they loved each other. Is this church one whose members revere God above everything else? And five, finally, and of the greatest importance, true evangelism occurs in a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at the second part of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is saying... When all of the other evidences of the Holy Spirit are present, when Christ-like lifestyle among its members, when the presence of the unity is in the body, when an attitude of reverence toward God is there, and when great joy is a part of the body, when all four of those things are present, people get saved. People come to know Jesus Christ because you just can't stand up against the Holy Spirit when all of those things are happening. Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a Christian imperative. We don't have any choice. It's something we must do if we're going to be a Christian, is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not optional. The early church provided an atmosphere of love and warmth. They studied, believed, taught, and lived the gospel of Jesus Christ. No wonder historians of the era said of the Christians, oh, how they loved each other. They loved each other. Do y'all love each other? Oh, I... I just, y'all treat me so nice. I feel y'all's love so often. Do you love each other? I think so. Love each other. Are people being saved in this church? I, I don't know exactly what the protocol is that we do, but I'm, I haven't seen the baptismal waters disturbed during the the few months that I've been here. I, that's something that I'd, I'm anxious to learn some more about. Are people being saved at the church because of how the members love each other? 
and love those outside these walls? If so, then keep on keeping on. If not, let's pray for a spiritual revival. Let's pray that the Holy Spirit will be very, very evident. This church has a fine facility, but the building is not the church. The people are the church. Now, since y'all paid your taxes, the Marine Corps was able to send me to a number of interesting places. And, and, and among them, uh, I have attended worship services in uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And uh, I've been to uh, the wonderful Cathedral of Notre Dame. And, uh, and so many of y'all have been to those places in Paris. I've been to the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., all those fabulous buildings that, you've, that we've got there. But you know what I find myself wondering? Wonder when was the last time somebody got saved here? You see, it's a beautiful edifice, but that's not the church. The church is the people. The church is the people filled with the Holy Spirit demonstrating these qualities that we're talking about. Are we a church that is filled with the Holy Spirit living out the qualities of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Let's keep praying for spiritual revival, opening our lives for the working of the Holy Spirit however he sees fit. Would you please bow your heads with me? Christian, I would ask you right now with your head bowed, would you recommit yourself to Jesus Christ? Would you say, Jesus, I'm ready to be, to let the Holy Spirit come and take control. Would you send a great revival in my soul? Jesus, I want you to be what you want to be in my life. I may not have had myself completely open to you. And right now, I'm ready for you to be in charge. Jesus, help me to take myself off the throne of my heart and put you back where you belong. Dear Jesus, I love you so. Help me to be real about having the Holy Spirit in charge. Would you pray that right now, honestly, sincerely? Oh, God. God, I pray that right now, Christians in this room will be recommitting themselves to you. That nobody will leave here without being in just the right relationship with you so that we'll be unified, so that our lifestyle will be recommitted to you, so that we'll not be playing a game, but that we'll be anxious to serve you and be brought together to serve you as a wonderful unified body in Christ, standing in awe before you and ready to serve whatever purpose you have in mind. Or person sitting in the sound of my voice, have you never prayed to receive Christ as your personal Savior? Do you not even know what I'm talking about? 
What I'm talking about is giving yourself completely to Christ and making Him Lord of your life, asking Him to forgive your sins and to become your master, accepting His death on the cross as payment for your sins and committing yourself to Him, accepting that Jesus is the Son of God and that he loves you so that he sacrificed himself for you. Just talk to him. Just talk to him and say, Jesus, I know I've sinned. And I know my sin must be paid for by death. That's why you died on that cross. And you overcame it by coming back to life. So now I now accept your death as payment for my sins. I ask you to come into my life and be my Lord and my Master. I give myself to you right now. Lord, please let me be a part of your kingdom. I want you to be my Master. Would you pray that prayer? Or something, it doesn't have to be those words, but the concept of putting Christ as King of your life and accepting Him as your Lord and Savior. Dear Jesus, I pray right now that you will help everybody in this room to be communicating with you. And those who need to make a public decision will make that decision. Those who need to make a private decision will make that decision for you right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, while you remain seated with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask our counselors to come and stand here in the front. And if you need to come, get up from your seat and come and talk to one of our counselors about a decision you need to make for Christ. That's what they're here for. They're here to talk to you and pray with you about the next step that needs to be taken in your life while you give your life to Christ, while you recommit your life, or if you just need to come and pray. You do that while we wait just a few more moments for Christ and the Holy Spirit to work in your life. counselors are waiting would you like to have your life in right relationship with Christ but you're just not sure what that means or what to do how to how to take that next step this is the time this is the time If I could have your attention for just a moment, please. Perhaps you feel like you do need to make a decision for Christ, but you didn't want to do something in front of the crew. You found this little slip on your, uh, your bulletin this morning. You can write your name, and you can check one of the blocks, uh, boxes, and there are uh, receptacles that you could drop this in, and somebody will get in touch with you this week if that's what the Lord wants you to do. Would you please stand, and let's have our closing prayer. Father, you're such a great God. It's been a good morning this morning. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that we know we can trust you with our very lives. 
Go with us from this place now, I pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.